Welcome to Touchline Radio. Oh, what a goal! And welcome to Touchline Radio. Hope you're well. Hope you're enjoying the summer, the sunshine, the brews, if that is your thing. Oh, I know it's been quite lovely. But what has been very fun and entertaining has been the World Cup so far. I must say I've been entertained from start till about the midway point. At the time of speaking, we are now at the end of the first stage of knockouts. Well, there have been a lot of interesting themes that have also been perked up during this World Cup. For example, Messi versus Ronaldo and leadership. What does it really mean to be the type of leader Ronaldo is? Or does Messi have a different quality to Ronaldo? Well, as we know now, they both ended up getting knocked out in the round of 16. So, and as we have seen, management is one of the most challenging roles you can have in football. How often do you see managers getting sacked left, right, and center when their team isn't performing? So to dive deeper into this topic, today I have with me author Cody Royal, whose book titled Where Others Won't draws stories of leadership from sporting organizations and teaches us how to apply them to the boardroom and perhaps our own personal lives as well. So without further ado, we'll have Cody Royal here with us after this. So here we are, Cody Royal. Thank you for being here. Welcome. Adam, thanks for having me. So, honestly, to begin, I the first thing that really struck me was the fact that you have successfully written a book. <laughs> Is it scary to, to write a book? The scariest thing I've done, by far, yeah. Um, so I self-published a book in December. Uh, it's called Where Others Won't. And um, yeah, going through that process, it took probably a year to come together and then there's probably about five years worth of blogs in there as well so it does take a long time to all pull together but um scary but also rewarding nice so at what point did you know that you had enough content or knowledge on this particular topic to say okay i can actually put this all together yeah good question it was it was a moment in time um i worked for one of the big banks here in toronto and um, you know, from nine to five, Monday to Friday, I was going in there and, and looking at how they were, you know, uh, the leadership practices and how they're trying to build teams and execute against certain projects. And then on the weekends, I was going to coach um, Canada's Aussie Rules program. So I'm the head coach of the men's program and and trying to do the same things. And I, it was just one of those light bulb moments where I thought these two are so far apart in terms of what I'm trying to do on the weekend and what they're trying to do at, uh, at the big banks. And I realized that I'd been writing about that for a good five years. So it, yeah, I, I don't think it was um, something that I necessarily thought about too much. It was just one of those on the treadmill kind of moments. I was like, I'm going to write a book about that. Nice. So was there a moment where, 
as you were learning so much while you were writing, of course, but did you notice that you're starting to apply this a little more to your own work life and even how you're approaching your, your team? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was doing the things that I talk about with my team anyway. That's where a lot of the, the fundamental ideas came from. But then also the, the best thing has been being able to talk to some of the people that I was able to talk to through writing the book and the interviews that I was able to do has really kind of extrapolated on those ideas and made me confident that they're, they're being used at the, the professional levels of pro sport as well. And um, that's the idea behind the book is that pro sport is probably two, two to three decades ahead of the corporate world in terms of building teams and, and leadership. Right, so drifting, almost a way of drifting from what we were talking about a little bit before, about the corporatism as you hear the word corporate and a lot of people all of a sudden get a bit stiff, right. but finding a little bit more of, um, I would say, a, a more lax way of achieving results. But I feel like in North America, there's a lot of pressure to get things done within a certain amount of time. And I guess it's one of those things where uh, productivity versus actual, I guess, living, because here in, in, in Canada, at least in Toronto, and the whole North America feel is that it's, um, it feels like people are, are, they're living to work instead of working to live kind of thing. Have you noticed a, a big difference in terms of uh, how people conduct themselves versus Australia and, and Canada? Not necessarily. I think they're, they're probably on par with each other. Uh, there's definitely some attitude differences there. I think Australia is is a little bit more forthright in how they do things, um, probably because we're so far away and we've kind of always had to punch up. Uh, and that doesn't really feel like the Canadian way of doing things, even though they're still little brother to the US. Um, but I don't think they're, they kind of punch up. I think Canadians are quite comfortable with themselves and their own identity. And um, But, you know, in terms of kind of my experience of working in the corporate world in Melbourne, Australia, to moving to Toronto, that that they overlapped seamlessly. It was just it was a very easy process to walk in on day one and go, I get this, I get how things work here. Nice. So it was probably more uh, of a sense of a cu getting accustomed to the street names and intersection as opposed to the overall culture of things. Hundred percent. North, south, east, west was so foreign to me. Uh, <laughs> Melbourne's not on a grid. Oh, a small part of it is on a grid, but we don't say I'll meet you on the southeast corner of. You know, young and young and uh, whatever, yeah. Gerard. Um, <laughs> well, I'll we, keep that in mind. Yeah, we we just say we just say uh, McDonald's, right? Or McDonald's. That's funny. Well, back to the football. We have both been fortunate to to witness the Goliaths of management in the form of Arsene Wenger and Sir Alex Ferguson, as we have both discussed, and plenty of people have for for quite some time, but. Can you draw similarities or differences in the way that they both achieved their own successes? Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, and a lot of that sort of research on, on who was doing what was, was part of developing the book as well. And uh, I think that the similarities certainly are the long-term view to how they've both gone about building those programs. And one of the things that I mention in the book is how, in particular, Sir Alex Ferguson isn't really regarded for rebuilding Manchester United. Um, we don't really talk about the fact that, you know, the 20 years before he arrived were basically a desert for Manchester United. They went from the Busby era and being the top of the English game to Liverpool and Everton overtaking them and Manchester United being in this abyss and they, they weren't feared. And he rebuilt that from basically from scratch. And so... Um, 
you know, there's there's elements of that in in what Wenger's done as well. I think they did it in very different ways. I don't think from the stories that you hear, Wenger wasn't an authoritarian like Alex Ferguson was. But um, yeah, I think that the end results have been quite similar. So it, it's funny that how such drastically different ways of approaching management and leadership can kind of result in the same thing, and that's you know the ultimate success of of uh, the team. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's probably an equal amount of similarities and an equal amount of differences between the two. And, and I'm not sure there's a right way and a wrong way. I think it's more so just what's right for that club at that time. That's a good point too, because when we look at Wenger revolutionizing the whole work ethic and the, the drinking culture and the diet, and that revolutionized the team within a matter of weeks and months and, I mean, there was also an element of uh, keeping a legacy intact. Of course, both clubs being in very different financial brackets, but um, I mean, Arsene Wenger having a bit of a trying time near the end, whereas Ferguson went off on a bit of a high. Um, but it seems like people, it's weird because someone like Ferguson can be obviously seen as a legend in a different scope than Arsene Wenger, but Wenger sort of kept on uh, trying to do what seemed like the same thing over and over. But again, alas, finding it difficult in the end it's it's hard it was hard to witness that and you are an arsenal supporter yourself correct i am an arsenal supporter yeah uh funnily enough my football heritage um canadian listeners won't recognize this name but ray bartz is uh my uncle he's recognized as probably australia's greatest ever player uh, he was the first international player first non-british player to be signed by manchester united when he was 19 matt busby signed him and um, he ended up getting homesick and uh, going back to Australia and they couldn't get him back over to the British Isles. But um, So for all intents and purposes, I probably should be a Man U fan. But um, yeah, getting into the game when it became publicly available to the Australian audiences kind of through the, the mid-90s was obviously when Arsenal were starting to get up and going and just that attractive way of playing football really uh, gelled with, with the way I would have played the game. And so I... Um, yeah, fell in love with them pretty early on. And um, yeah, still haven't been to a game, actually. Every time I go to London, it's the off-season. Oh. Which sucks. Well, it would be a... Oh, it's a unique experience. I would say going away is what really makes you feel that adrenaline. And a lot of people that I know personally know that I just can't stop talking about it. But when you're on that train with all these people and you're thinking, we're all going to to wherever location. For me, I was fortunate to go to, to Old Trafford, and <laughs> I must say, as soon as you you get the opportunity, just grab it with both hands. But that's interesting. Was there any animosity at home because of this uh, shift towards, of course, a very fierce rival to be supporting them, whereas you had this very close relative who, of course, wore the shirt? I wouldn't say. I mean, the thing with, uh, with Australia being so far away, and we're only relatively young footballing culture in terms of it being mainstream, so I don't think anyone really adopted their team, at least in my generation, knowing about the rivalries. You you heard about you know, Arsenal and Tottenham and Liverpool and Everton just because of the commentary, but you didn't really understand it. I think it's much, uh, much more well recognised now that a lot of people have travelled and been to the games, but we didn't grow up really knowing about rivalries or those, those you know, tensions between supporter groups. We didn't really care. We just started falling in love with the game and nothing else really mattered. Mm -hmm. 
So back to Arson and Sir Alex. Those were main figureheads that people can look to and 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 really revere in whatever they had to say for the most part. But a lot of clubs are now shifting towards this continental approach where you have multiple people in these uh, important roles. So how does this change the formula in your opinion? Yeah, well, I mean... It's really interesting, even what Arsenal is doing now, where you know that particularly the the player recruitment has basically been ripped from that coaching role, which was a traditional part of a coaching role in England. It's going to be interesting to see how that is adopted, particularly in the English game, where um, yeah, you know, uh, you know, Emery is walking into um, kind of what he's been used to at Sevilla and PSG, where he's got people doing that for him. Um, so I don't know whether they're necessarily pioneers at Arsenal with that in the English game, but um, you know it, it's going to be interesting to see who switches over and, and how that impacts particularly English managers in the game where they might not have been exposed to it like someone like Emery has, um, where literally there are guys going out full-time recruiting, trying to sign players, um, you know, nego- full-time negotiators where their only job is to you know, attract the, the top uh, talent to the club. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a different dynamic now, but it's a little bit actually like the North American model as well, where we gen- we have general managers here and, you know, we're sitting a day after, you know, John Tavares signs here and that is down to a particular general manager doing his job properly. Exactly. And being able to, to bring in someone like that and, and actually sell them on the ambition of the club because managers, being a manager in a club, which is a bit of a, I mean, there's many meanings to the word management, but they're the ones who are under, under fire all the time. You're always seeing managers, especially last season, Ronald Coleman was unable to bring Everton up. Uh, I think Frank DeBoer really struggled. He lasted three games, four games at, at Palace. So in, in sports, of course, there's a lot of pressure for these, for when you're filling stadiums full of people and they are, have the expectation, but... I mean, do you think it's fair for managers to get cut as quickly as they do sometimes? No, absolutely not. And part of that is, uh, you know, I've spoken about that in the book in terms of, you know, the ability to be able to kind of see your plan to fruition. And I did a little bit of a study uh, a couple of years ago on Super Bowl winning coaches. And it ended up being um, there was a a point at about four years where I think it was, I did about 15 years worth of research back to about 2000. And most of the the Super Bowls had been won by coaches that were in their third or fourth year. So to use that as an example, you know, they've come in and generally they're cut at about one or two years. And so it's, it's kind of that thing where even if there has been some early struggles, that third year might be that intermediate year. And then the fourth year is when they go on to win. Um, NFL and, and football are different, obviously, but um, yeah, I, I really struggle with that um, clubs bailing out on on their coaches, and we've seen it happen even with the the more stable um, teams like a Swansea and Stoke City, and and they kind of panicked a little bit when they got close to relegation and bailed out on the long term, thinking that, that that had made them successful, and look at the results. And so, you know, I think that's argument enough for some of these clubs to, you know, obviously financially that they might struggle if they do get relegated, but the the long-term view has to stay a long-term view rather than just panicking because, you know, halfway through the, the season at Christmas or something, you're 18th. 
Um, you kind of have to believe in in the manager and you could be the next Leicester City who were in that same position. You know, they were 20th at Christmas and managed to survive and then go on to do what they did. One of the scariest things I, I can imagine for a manager is when players lose faith in in what the representation is of what the what the game plan is and and you speak of Leicester and I think that's one of the most remarkable sporting stories that we will hear for quite some time you have a team that come up to the Premier League almost get relegated then win it all what's what's your take on the the charismatic approach because interestingly enough Claudio Ranieri didn't even last that long at Leicester either mm-hmm so what what happens in that sort of environment? How did you analyze that whole that whole like hamburger of success? Yeah, I, I love this question. This is I'm in the middle of writing a follow up book, and I, I talked a little bit about this in where others won't, but this is going to be the next one. It is around how you do that, uh, how you manage a team over time, and how you take them towards their goals. And I think part of my analysis was I think there's an element of what Ranieri did where he came in and essentially adapted his style to what list, uh, what Leicester's team were about. And so some of those things were they were quite young, they were quite jovial, so you know they weren't as serious off the field. Um, there was a lot of joking that went on in the locker rooms. Uh, and then also the game plan, he basically built it around what they could do rather than coming in and saying, oh, I've got all the answers, you know, I've been at these big clubs, you know, Lazio, Real Madrid, whatever it is. And um, rather than coming in and thinking he had the answers, he came in and actually adapted to, to what they could do and what they could do really well. And so that's what you saw them play over and over again was you know playing to Jamie Vardy's speed or the space that Mares could create for himself. And, um, and so I, I've started studying that. You know, when, when coaches come into environments or leaders come into environments, how much do they actually try to adapt to what their team can do at that time? Rather than coming in and saying, you know, like a Phil Jackson, where it's like he's got one game plan and you know what that game plan is going to be. And I think that has kind of worn off. You know, it worked in the 90s, but it's kind of finished now. And some of the more successful coaches we've seen across sports, Steve Kerr, basically just built it around what his players could do. And so for, for you know, leaders in sport, I think that's apt. And then also, I want to apply that to business. Like, why aren't our business leaders coming in and say, what do we do really well? Why don't we, why don't we do more of that and stop, you know, playing around over here or fiddling around over here? So what's the, the what state are you in with this next book? Yeah, I've started interviewing. So I've spoken to... Uh, I've done a lot of uh, football interviews, actually, uh, Graham Potter. Uh, I spoke to Graham when he was still at Ustersun, just after they had lost to Arsenal. And uh, obviously their story as a club is kind of perfect for what I'm trying to write about, how you adapt to what your players can and can't do. And um, he's moved over to Swansea recently. Um, I spoke to um, uh, Joe Montemuro, who's Arsenal's women's coach. We spoke about that before. Uh, who, again, has some fascinating things to say. And uh, your previous guest, Kelly Lindsay, is on on the hook as well to talk to me. I'm really interested to, to speak to her about how she's adapting, and you guys talked about it a little bit, to what her players can and can't do. That It's exactly what I'm, uh, what I'm interested in and, and what I'm fascinated by at the moment. So I listened to your little half hour there, and I'm going to extrapolate on some of the things that you guys talked about in terms of how she's trying to build not only the X's and O's in the game plan, but the, the culture 
that she stepped into. Nice. Well, so. I'm glad to have started some contribution to that then. That's great. Uh, well, one club that I believe you spoke to that has had a unique model is Southampton. And I believe you spoke to Ralph Kruger as well. Now, what did you find that, uh, what model did he have that seemed to be particularly successful? Uh, because Southampton also were a club that came from the lower leagues. They hadn't been in the Premier League since about the mid-2000s. And then they came up and made a bit of a, a spark. Thankfully, they stayed in the Premier League for another season at least. But what, were, what was that conversation like? Yeah, well, first of all, Ralph... Uh, and this is how I introduce him in in the book, is he's one of the most fascinating human beings on the face of the planet as far as I'm concerned. If you haven't read his story, I recommend that you do that. Um, But what I really loved about my conversation with Ralph was uh, how insightful he was about the the nitty-gritty tactics of what he did, you know, as soon as he got to Southampton Football Club. And there was question marks about him. How does a, a lifelong hockey coach run an English Premier League team? And essentially what he was able to do was um, really solidify uh, what Southampton's culture was and what the staff thought that they could achieve. And so one of the things that they did uh, at the time, they had about 204, I think, full-time staff and they had an all-hands meeting and every single staff member got to speak and the board sat there and listened to everyone and so it went for, you know, six hours or whatever it was, you know, well into the night. But um, basically everyone from the receptionist to the data team to the accounting team were all able to stand up there and say, this is what I do, this is what I like and dislike, and this is where I think Southampton Football Club should be heading. And then they based their culture and their, their verbiage and their language around what people had said at that meeting. So really, you know, going back to kind of that a true meaning of culture. Like culture is the the behaviours and the thoughts and the systems in place by a group of people. And I think, you know, one of the things that we do in in our culture and in particularly in business is again the leader comes in and says, oh, I've got all the answers. And so they 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 come up with the behaviours that they think people should be doing rather than the people saying, Well this is my behaviour and this is what I believe in and uh, you know the, the leadership kind of adapting to that. And so, you know, they came up with a Southampton way. Um, which is it's turned into a documentary. So if you're interested in how they came about that, um, it's on YouTube. I think it was an NBC documentary. It's about an hour. It's called The Southampton Way. So you just punch that into YouTube and, um, yeah, just you know, talking about the specifics of what their club is about because they are vastly different from Manchester United. So, you know, pretending that they're going to win the Premier League every year isn't going to work for them. So what else do they have? And, you know, what you find is that they obviously have a very strong um, history with their academy, and so that plays a part in in it. And you know, turning talent into um, you know players that they can then on sell and and make money from that. Um, but they've just recognised that that's us. That's what Southampton Football Club's about, and that's not about trophies for them. So, yeah, uh, you know, we spoke for about just over an hour, and um, you know, he just kind of laid it all on the line. He's just a brilliant. Uh, Brilliant man. It's interesting because it's the responsibility of recognizing 
what the ambition of a club is. Because I wonder about teams that are not even in the top division and what are they actually striving to achieve. Uh, I spoke to uh, someone from Sheffield FC. And that was also fascinating because it's their, they want to be an active museum, as I like to call them. So it's, it's, it's so good to recognize and outline exactly what those ambitions are. And it's nice that's, that Southampton have been able to do that. Basically, Liverpool really did uh, build basically a starting, almost a starting <laughs> 11 off of them. But right. it's nice when there is sort of a game plan out there. And for a lot of teams, especially coming from a lower division to a, a league like the Premier League, staying up is what is very important. But when you want to win, like Manchester City, then that's they, they put the money into that. So in sport, and this is almost a funny question, but does money help leadership? This is a great question. Someone else posed this to me recently as well. Um, it certainly does. I mean, money helps everything. Um, there's, I think we just, going back to that recognition piece, I think we just need to recognise that. It certainly helps. It's going to help you potentially recruit um, you know, higher calibre people or headhunt higher calibre people um, or maybe it's just a specific person to lead and um, sometimes money facilitates that. Um, but there's also, there's definitely ways that you can circumnavigate that for sure. And, and that's where the term, or that's where the title of the book came from, the terminology, um, you know, where others won't. And there's this idea that you can create competitive advantage in areas that others aren't looking. And generally we look at money and we look at, you know, um, in this country, it's, you know, Rogers and Bell and RBC and TD and they have money. So, you know, smaller firms can kind of defer to that and say, oh, we didn't get the best talent because they have the money. I call bullshit on that a little bit. And I think um, there's some really creative ways. And that's why I looked at sports was we don't really look at sports for how those smaller teams and Ustersund, how do they beat Arsenal at the Emirates in, um, in the Europa League? And, you know, it's a village of 14,000 people. They barely have a, a football team alive, but they go, you know, to one of the biggest clubs in the world and win. How do they do that? Um, and we see it over and over and over again in, in pro sports. And so I, I wanted to dig into that because I guess a long way of answering your question, it always helps for sure, money. But what's more interesting is where it doesn't help and the, the lengths that particularly sports teams go to to still win or their definition of winning without the money. I like that because there's been, and again, I, I can use Arsenal. There's so many examples you can use for Arsenal for this type of topic, but it has to be said that, okay, a lot of people were very unhappy about Stan Kroenke and the fact that he's not putting enough money into the club. But I, in, I am intrigued to know at some point, at what point does that translate to an error that happens on the pitch or in this game or that game, right? Is that the is it the overall the money and the recruitment how how does uh how does it play off on the field and off the field? Arsenal are a great example for this because they they have the money clearly and often they're seen as not using it in a way that the fans in particular want it to be used. But um, the way I think it plays out with Arsenal is their ability to be able to recruit the players that they actually want, and this is where I think. Wenger ended up falling down in the end was um, he was unable to recruit the players that he wanted at the rate that he wanted them at. And so he ended up having to bring in his, let's say, fifth preference. 
Um, and, you know, there ended up becoming uh, seagulls for him in recruiting. And so teams would just wait to see who he wanted and then use their financial prowess to go and get that player because he's obviously renowned probably more as a recruiter um, than anything else. And so, um, yeah, Arsenal's a really interesting one. It's been funny, you know, as, uh, you know, kind of super fans like you and I are to watch the change since he, even since he's left and how that money has been reallocated and they're now actually getting players that um, Miss Lintat wants rather than, B and C and, and D options for them. So it's going to be interesting actually to see how that plays out on the field because um, I, I don't think we've really seen it properly from Arsenal because they haven't actually got the guys that they wanted. And even someone like Ivan Gazidis who made who is slowly shifting the the reins, especially with having Arson out now, he is someone who is a bit of a figurehead. So how do you figure, how have you observed his way of sort of entering this more, well, almost the top of the pyramid? Yeah, that's interesting too. Um, and we talked about this a little bit uh, just before we came on air here, is the, you know, one of the things I learned from Joe Montemuro was this kind of long-term um uh, outlook on on life from Arsenal is actually a thing. It's not something you just hear about in the media. It really is something that underpins, and he calls it the fabric or the DNA of the club. And is one of the reasons he joined the women's program was because of that long term view. And the they don't necessarily subscribe to the week to week view that um, a Chelsea or a Manchester City do, where if if they lose badly, they just get rid of the coach and and uh, replace them. Um, and so, you know, with, with Arsenal, um, there is that genuine long-term view. And so I think that loosening the purse strings may or may not work. I, I think it needs to be situational. Um, I think they should, uh, again, they've proven already that they can kind of get to the players that they, they want now. And so splashing the cash can become more situational when there's an opportunity that arises. You know, someone falls out at one of the major clubs overseas, they can go and use, uh, you know, 70 million or whatever it is on that one person and, and, uh, and spend wisely otherwise. But, uh, yeah, it's weird because it's such a basket case, even over the six months between how Wenger exited and kind of what he had access to and then what's happened subsequently. So um, I think it's a work in progress. Yeah, and the agreement of recruitment I find intriguing too because I remember a few years ago when Danny Welbeck signed he just kind of appeared out of nowhere. Right. And that seemed like a, a move made or a testing move uh, made by Ivan Gazidis at the time. And now when we even heard about the, the backstory of how Emery was was even appointed, the three of them sat and they had cards, I believe. It was sort of like, put your number one choice down. And uh, it's interesting because it's, there's obviously deep discussion when it comes to finding someone to, to spearhead your club, but it seems very, in a way, like bashfully childlike to, to do something like that. But it's also fair because instead of really hearing uh, everyone's own opinion, I mean, of course, they broke it down, but to just have it all play it out on the cards, so to speak, seems like an interesting approach. Um, but now I've always tried to stay away from the big name of things, but I, I have to ask you about this because there have been many stories during this World Cup, but one of them has been the leadership qualities between Ronaldo and Messi. So how do you differentiate these qualities? And 
Um, what are the qualities that people, I guess, try to see in them that, that say, this is what makes you a leader. This is what makes you the greatest of all time. Yeah. Well, I'll go on record straight away and say, I hate that whole discussion. Um, and it's particularly driven, I think, by the US media where there's this kind of Americanization of it and this um, LeBron versus Michael-ization of, of Ronaldo and, and Messi, particularly as it pertains to winning. And there's, you know, daily from Bleach Report, there's some meme about whatever they've won individually versus each other. And I think the whole thing is such rubbish. And I, I get where it comes from. And I, I know, you know, they're at two absolute rival clubs and um, they're without doubt the two best players in the world. But the the fact that we're playing a team sport with, you know, it's not basketball. It's not one player makes a difference. Um and so, yeah, I'll just I'll put that out there. But to answer your question, um, leadership is so different depending on who the team is and what scenario they find themselves in. And so I'm not sure even Portugal and, and Argentina are even a, a fair comparison in, in, in that state either because I don't think they're – I don't think they've ever been um, – in, in a good spot at the same time where they can have, you know, a, a good head-to-head clash. Um, so, you know, both are... What I'd be interested in is to ask both of them whether they feel like they're actual leaders, like natural leaders, or whether they've been thrust into a leadership role because, um, because of their success. I think that would be interesting to find out. That is a very good way of, of, of poising the question in a different way because when you are regarded so highly or you also do a thing, for example, Ronaldo scoring a hat-trick against Spain, then it seems like they're the ones who uh, carry the team on their shoulders. But then that doesn't make it seem fair to the other players who are on there as well, although they are not regarded on the same echelon as those two. So... I can imagine that when the pressure gets so high and they fail, they probably feel that failure a lot harder than people imagine that I would, they would. I would think so, yeah. And that's been my um, my experience with pro athletes in particular, in team sports. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, especially to, to consider how Messi even retired once and then he came back and said, I still have something to prove. But it's, it is odd when when you are someone of such prominence and I, I might be speaking on their behalf a little bit, but when everyone is looking at you to speak all the time or say something to to revolutionize, it must get it must be hard to be even in your own head when you can't even walk down the street and go get milk. Absolutely, <laughs> right. And um, so, um, so you're saying your your next project, of course, is is finishing the next book. When is the expected date of completion? Don't have a date yet. Um, I think there'll be a natural conclusion to kind of the conversations that I had and, and who I can and can't get in contact with, um, which in in sport is tough because of the, the overlap of seasons and, you know, I'm trying to get in touch with people like Steve Kerr and, uh, you know, the NBA draft was last week and then you're into free agency and there's all these different kind of circumstances that either allow you to talk to someone or don't. And so, um, I don't know, again, I think it's going to be one of those treadmill moments where I'm like, I think I have enough at the moment to be able to finish the book. But um, yeah, um, 
regardless, even if you overdo it in terms of writing a book, there's always just fodder for the next one. And so, you know, you can just uh, kind of put that off into the future and say, well, that interview wasn't exactly what I was after and go and do another one. So, yeah, you can um, never have too much content, right? You can never have too much content, no. And it's about enjoying the process more than just being um, handcuffing yourself to one book. I think, uh, yeah, exactly. Something could become a blog that, you know, could go on Medium and become viral that actually sells the books. Um, so, yeah, I think it's falling in love with the process rather than the end result. Indeed. Well, Cody, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. If we have the social media, where can we find you? Yeah, I'm at Cody Royal on basically everything. The, there's not too many Cody Royals floating around. So, um, And uh, whereotherswont.com is a link to my blog, and uh, you can check out uh, the Amazon link and all my media and blogs that contributed to the book and a whole range of other different things kind of a crossover between sports and business fantastic well you will find the links in the description of the podcast cody thank you once again and this is adam from touchline radio until the next time bye for now you've been listening to touchline radio 